Welcome to Plodcast, episode 62. It's great to have you with us. I don't take this for granted. After all, instead of listening to this podcast, you could be staring mindlessly at the traffic in front of you. And, uh, and yet you made the choice to be listening to this also. So, there we go. As, uh, as I'm recording this, uh, we do not yet know if uh, Brett Kavanaugh is going to be on the Supreme Court. Um, he's, uh, I'm recording this on a Tuesday, and he's going to be uh, testifying about the accusations made against him on Thursday, I believe. And um, we have, uh, I'd, I'm tempted to say that we've officially entered into the silly season on this. And I would say that it's the silly season if it were not so demonic. Um, uh, you're, you look at this scenario and you're tempted to say, who, who unleashed the demons? Um, uh, devils are accusers. Um, just that's their nature. That's what they do. And we have gotten to the point where accusation equals conviction and, well, accusation equals conviction if you are going in a particular way. In other words, accusation equals conviction if you are dealing with a, a justice who might possibly be pro-life, who might possibly rule in a way that limits or eliminates uh, Roe. And that's what all of this is about. One, one observer has said, I think uh, rightly, that we should just consider this as a full-dress rehearsal for uh, the nomination battle to, repl- to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. Uh, what, we have, what we've had thus far is Gorsuch was appointed to uh, fill Scalia's seat after Scalia passed away. And so that was—everything's just sort of even Stephen. Uh, uh, Gorsuch is roughly in the same place that Scalia was in. And then we had— uh, this nomination, Kavanaugh, to replace uh, Anthony Kennedy, who was, uh, who really was a swing vote. He he could go either way. He went the wrong way in some atrocious um, ways, but he was he was not um, an automatic hard left vote the way Ginsburg is. So uh, uh, Kavanaugh would move the court to the right. Um, and threateningly so, such that they're willing to pull out all the stops and, and, and haul out accusations from high school. Uh, but what's going to happen when a diehard, reliable, hard-left vote on the Supreme Court is going to be replaced by someone like Gorsuch or like Kavanaugh? Um, it's going to be World War III. That's, that's what it's going to be. And what we have to understand here is not, uh, the issue is not whether conservatives or liberals can have a skeleton in their closet, but rather how we determine if someone has a skeleton in their closet. How do we verify this? How do we know? Uh, one of the reasons I wrote, uh, together with my friend Randy Booth, one of the reasons I wrote a justice primer is because it is evident from how these things are processed that people do not understand how to weigh and evaluate accusations. In a fallen world where people can do sinful things, 
uh, it is necessary at some point for someone to be the prosecutor. It's necessary at some point for someone to bring an accusation and say, hey, this person ought not to hold this office because they did thus and such. That is, uh, um, that is something we have to take into account, right? But here, this, is the, this is the problem. Uh, for many Christians, uh, th- this, is, uh, uh, this is a hard one because for many evangelical Christians, a prosecutor is the good guy. All right, so if you have a, a Christ, young Christian graduate who's graduating from law school and he tells people at church, well, I'm, gonna, I'm going to um, get a job with the uh, prosecutor's office and I'm going to help put bad guys away. Everybody claps them on the back and shakes their hand and good job, everybody. And, um, you know, way to, way to go. And if he, instead of that, said, well, I, I've got a... Uh, I got a job in the public defender's office. I'm going to be working there and, and defending people who can't, aff- can't afford an attorney. Uh, for most conservative evangelical Christians, historically, the prosecutor has been the person, I mean, he's going after bad guys. That's, that's God's work, right? Um, and defending bad guys is, um, must be the devil's work. But we should remember that in Scripture, it's the other way around. Satan is the accuser. The devil is the accuser. Uh, it says that the devil accuses the brethren uh, day and night before the throne of God in the book of Revelation. It says that. And, uh, and it says in 1 John 2 that Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our uh, public defender. Jesus defends the guilty. And what has happened, I think, in part, is... The ferocity of the accusations, the ferocity of the prosecution, has thrown uh, Christians off their game. They don't; they're not used to defending, um, and because they 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 are unaccustomed to um, mounting any kind of defense at all, they're way out of shape when someone when it comes time to defend someone who is quite likely innocent, and so uh, we're up against. A, an accusation machine that just churns out the accusations and Christians instinctively are on the side of the prosecution. Right? And I think that that is perhaps a problem. I think that's, that's part of our problem. That's also one of the reasons why the shift from mercy work, mercy ministry to social justice has been a problem. Because uh, when you are doing mercy work, you're simply trying to make somebody's life better. When you are um, fighting for social justice, it's not really justice unless the bad guy pays. It's not really justice unless you bring in, you, you haul somebody in and fine them or flog them or imprison them or, or execute them. Um, and so just, social justice has sort of co-opted um, the conservative desire to nail the bad guy. And this, uh, this is demented in all kinds of ways, and we want to make sure that we extricate ourselves from sort of a, a right-wing affinity for we're on the side of the cops or we're on the side of the prosecutor. Um, it's good and right and proper to be on the side of the cops when the cops are right. It's good to be with the prosecutor when the prosecutor 
is telling the truth. It's not good to be reflexively on the side of the police or reflexively on the side of the prosecution any more than it's proper to be reflexively on the side of uh, the defense. What, you want, what we want to be is reflexively on the side of the truth, and our interest is to find out what that is. Now, bringing this back to Kavanaugh, um, of course, if you have someone who is a, a criminal or who has done a number of criminal things, even if it was a number of years ago, you don't want that person sitting on the Supreme Court. But neither do you want to reward the kind of behavior that brings trots out a charge at the last minute for maximum political effect and then treats it as though I believe, you know, I believe the woman. If the woman makes an accusation, then we are automatically to simply believe her. Lady Justice is blind. The, the standard picture of justice blindfolded holding up the scales is absolutely the biblical approach. We should be making our determination of whether or not this uh, nominee's um, opportunity to serve on the Supreme Court is being decided with us not knowing whether he's conservative or liberal, whether he was nominated by a Republican or a Democrat, the process, the processes should be the same. And that basically the thing that is um, being that is so um, dismaying about all of this is uh, as bad as what is being done to Kavanaugh is, and it's really bad, uh, what's being done to our justice system is far, far worse. So my book review for episode uh, 62 in podcast, the book review is, is going to be sort of a background big overview of the 100 Cupboards series written by Nate Wilson, written by my son, Andy Wilson. Um, and there are four books involved in this. Um, there's 100 Cupboards, which kicked the whole thing off. Then there's Dandelion Fire. And then there's The Chestnut King. And that's the trilogy proper that follows the adventures of Henry York. Um, and then subsequently, uh, another book was a prequel to the Hundred Cupboards uh, trilogy was published called The Door Before. Uh, and The Door Before sort of sets up the, um, uh, sets up the whole arrangement where uh, we see uh, that we later see Henry York uh, walk into. Um, and it also, a little teaser here, it also ties some of uh, the fantasy worlds that Nate has created uh, in his other works together with this world. So um, there's a, uh, Nate has two standalone books, um, uh, fiction books, Leapike Ridge and Boys of Blur. He also has the, um, uh, the Outlaws of Time trilogy, uh, three books there. And he also has um, the Ashtown Burials. And the Ashtown Burials is, um, uh, there are three volumes of that uh, out now. And a fourth is owed. And a fourth is actually in process. Um, if I could give you a little background on this. Um, uh, when uh, Random House made the decision to discontinue publishing Ashtown Burials, uh, but they did that with 
Nate owing them another manuscript. So he paid them. He wanted to finish the uh, Ashdown burials, um, but they didn't. They didn't want to. Uh, but he owed them a manuscript, and so they came to an agreement to have him write the prequel to 100 Cupboards. So that was his final manuscript with um, uh, with Random House, and then he went to HarperCollins for the Outlaws of Time uh, series. And uh, currently, I am assured, he is uh, working on book four of the Ashtown Burials, which is, I think, called The Silent Bells. So... Uh, the door before ties a bunch of those uh, threads together from um, uh, from the other series. So, so there's a there's a connection point uh, there if you want to if if you're interested in looking at that in the door before. I just uh, uh, recently reread through the cupboards series. Uh, Nancy and I read uh, a book aloud together in the evenings, and we just uh, went through 100 cupboards, Dandelion Fire, and the Chestnut King. And uh, I, I wanted to point to a number of, uh, I wanted to point to a handful of things in, in these books. Uh, one is uh, in this series and in the others, one of the things you see is the importance of fathers and the gap that is made, the gap that is created um, with their absence. But there's a different, there's a, there's a, um, a difference between a father who runs away or a father who abdicates or a father who bails um, and a father who is missing because captured by the enemy or um, in uh, in the cupboard series uh, Henry's uh, real father his birth father is uh, is Mordecai his name Mordecai and he has been uh, entrapped and hidden away and long gone missing and Henry has been pushed out of that world into Kansas and uh, well yeah, pushed into Kansas and then is adopted um, by um, someone who is way overprotective and his adoptive parents uh, are kidnapped on a uh, bicycling trip in South America and so he goes to live with family uh, in Kansas who the, the folks who live in the house where he was pushed through from the other world. One thing leads to another, and Henry gets um, sucked back into the adventures that are um, uh, tumbling out of his, um, his home world, his home, his, his point of origin, his, his, uh, his hometown, his home city, his home country, his home world. So... Uh, one of the things that happens, he's reunited with his father and with his mother and his real family. And uh, a strong element in, um, in this is uh, fathers and a connection to fathers. Another, another strong element in these books is, uh, and you see this in Nate's nonfiction books, you see it in Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl and also from, uh, in uh, his Death by Living, and that is learning to learning to see how weird reality is this is a uh, there's a very strong chestertonian element in Nate's fiction where he is trying to get uh, the kids who read these books not to uh, put the book down and wish they could go to a world 
where things were that fantastical, but rather to put the book down realizing that their backyard is that fantastic, that fantastical, that, um, you know, crammed with, uh, crammed with wonders every, everywhere you go. Uh, a third element is the importance of growing up, the importance of uh, toughening up, the importance of uh, sacrificing yourself, the, the importance of learning to say no to pain. I'm going to do the right thing despite the pain. Um, one of the things that uh, Nate does to create a very uh, vivid sense of being there is um, detailed descriptions of physical pain and physical discomfort that the protagonist is going through. You, you, you feel like you're there, and you feel like you are pushing through together with the, uh, uh, together with the protagonist. Uh, really, uh, I've read these before, obviously, but really enjoyed going through them again. And uh, uh, some of them, well, we read them, uh, Nancy and I read them aloud in the evening, but we also took a road trip, and and uh, this series is available on, on Audible. And um, so we listened to a chunk in the car, had a really good time. I, I commend it to you. If you haven't, uh, the, the 100 Cupboards series has... Um, has sold in the hundreds of thousands. It's it's a bona fide best-selling series, and um, and if you haven't read it, if you haven't had your kids read it, if you haven't um, jumped in, uh, when you do, you're going to find out that it's a it's a bestseller for a reason. It's really good stuff. So here we are, um, podcast episode sixty-two. And like I said before, it's great to have you with us. Um, this is our hamartiology section where we're going through the New Testament looking at all the different words for various sins. And, and I've been spending a number of weeks on the verb to sin, hamartano, to not just uh, sin in particular ways, but just the generic term for sin. Hamartano is the verb and hamartia is the, is the noun. Um, in his first epistle... John uses the verb hamartano a number of times. If we claim that we have not sinned, we are representing God to be a liar, because he said he says that we have sinned. That's in one ten. John writes so that we will not sin two one. But if we do sin, also in two one, we have an advocate, a defense attorney, to represent us before God, and that defense attorney is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, going on to chapter 3, those who abide in Christ do not sin, 3.6, while those who continue on in sin have not seen him or known him, also 3.6. This is because the person who commits sin in this way is of the devil, that's in 3.8. The one who is born of God doesn't sin in this way, 3.9, and the one who is born of God does not sin, again, 5.18. Now, those who see a brother sin, the kind of sin that is not unto death, then it is appropriate to pray for that person. God will give life to those who have not sinned to the point of dying over it. 5.16. But, but if the person has died, there's no sense in continuing to pray for him. Um, so I don't, take that, um, this, I don't take the sin unto death as a sin that is 
filed under sins unto death, and you look it up in the little book, and if you have a friend who committed that sin, there's no sense praying for him because that he's gone, man. Um, I think I think we uh, identify this sin by the result. So if the person has sinned and died in sinning, has sinned to the point of death and has died in that condition, uh, we should let the, uh, you know, it says in, in Proverbs, I think when the wicked man dies, his hope perishes. Uh, Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So I don't think we're looking at a particular quality of sin or a particular sin on a list of unforgivable sins, but rather a sin that someone has committed and has subsequently died without repenting. Um, I think we're being instructed not to pray for the dead that way. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.